to the men's toilet. We sucked all the oxygen out of the room to make this the perfect comedy atmosphere. It's as dark as a dungeon in here and there's not a breath of air and it's just fantastic. People are breathless with anticipation of wondering if they'll be able to inhale uh, like they're in a Danny Boyle movie about going toward the sun. So um, <laughs> welcome back. This is our uh, 17th week on the Fringe. Uh, we came here in um, uh, uh, July just to get started. Thank you for your mild laughter in that regard. I've been here for a week. Uh, this is the second and last podcast of this run. Uh, we're very excited because the first one went so well. And we've been doing a Who's Line Anyway over at the Q&A Hall across the way at the uh, cutely named Utterbelly that has a cute cow logo for every moment of its life and 5,000 cow names to indicate everything. And uh, we've had some fabulous people on. Uh, by the time this one goes out, which is next Monday, I think we'll be down to our last show. And I don't know who will be on that. But I want to talk about a couple of the people that have been playing with us uh, in the last week. Um, people often ask me, do you miss doing Whose Line Is It Anyway? Well, we just finished our seventh season on The CW in the United States. I'm doing a two-week run here with all the British cast of Whose Line Is It Anyway. I'm on, um, going back on the road in September with Ryan Stiles and the American uh, cast of Whose Line Is It Anyway. Um, uh, we've been on tour for 20 years, and uh, last year I did uh, Australia and New Zealand with Colin and Brad for two weeks, so no. <laughs> Not only do I not fucking miss it, I can't get away from it. It dogs me in the night, like Hamlet's father's ghost. I wake up and it's standing on the ramparts. Who's lying, Greg? I'm like, I know, mine, mine, mine. The sad part is we're all still friends. I could have really used a big cocaine feud about this point in my career, you know what I mean? Where we just all get really mad at each other and I go over to someone's house and trash it and then they park like a, a thousand pounds of fertilizer on my lawn or something and there's some sort of giant uh, ongoing, you know, uh, stance of aggressiveness and horror between us, but the sad part is we still find each other wildly amusing and uh, we still laugh at each other's jokes, except for Clive. <laughs> Clive Anderson is here on the British one. Um, for our American friends, you may remember Clive from nothing. And um, <laughs> for our British friends, uh, he had a series of uh, shows where he'd go around the world uh, in the 90s and early 2000s and um, be condescending to people in foreign countries. <laughs> and he also had a couple of talk shows where he'd be condescending to regular people who come on a talk show. Uh, and I did both of his chat shows. I got to meet Will Smith at one of his chat shows, uh, so I really shouldn't complain. Uh, Clive's been lovely to me intermittently over the years. And uh, <laughs> what I love about him the most is he really thinks he's funny. I mean, all evidence to the contrary. In 30 years, people are not laughing at him, and he still gets up there and gives it the old college try. It must be Cambridge, right? Just that sense of confidence, you know? Because I know no one laughed. You know, like that. People who go to Cambridge just think they're funny no matter what fucking happens, really. They can write the worst goddamn thing in the world. And they're like, oh, that looked quite well. Like, well, no one liked it. Mm, yes, no one <laughs> They're people, aren't they? And they don't have much of an opinion. I'm like, no, wrong. Uh, so he gets, uh, he, he supposedly gets up and warms up the crowd at the top of the show, which I love. Thank you. I heard him tell uh, one of the women who was guesting with us that um, he warms up the crowd. And I was like, doesn't warming up the crowd mean you make them laugh? <laughs> every 15 to 30 seconds until we come on because that's what comedy is uh, but I guess with Clark's world it just means um, he talks to them and they're supposed to bask in the glow of his everlasting warmth like a, a duraflame log that just never ends really like flying too close to a uh, um, you know a, a, a red dwarf <laughs> the light is dying and he's small but there's still something coming out of it a radio frequency uh, you'll know that I'm just joking and stuff. Every once in a while, he'll uh, ding me so hard on stage that the crowd will go, ooh, and every once in a while, I'll ding him so hard the crowd will go, ooh, and I thought, really, after 30 years, you're not ready for our, our banter? Uh, it's all we've got. It's definitely all he's got. Uh, I have more because I have people who love me and stuff. 
<laughs> you know, family went on. Uh, let's see here. Uh, oh, right. The people who are setting in with us. Uh, some lovely, talented uh, women to give it a little female energy. As you know, uh, Whose Line has been a, a largely male affair uh, over the years, although the American one, sometimes we haven't, get this, um, two or three black people and two or three women on the same show. I know. Look at us. Look at us diversifying and getting all woke. This, this season's lit. Um, but for all the years we did it in uh, uh, the UK, uh, and by the way, I was interviewed by a Scottish magazine last week, and they said, like, are you ready for a reboot? Is that what this is all about? Are you guys trying to get back on TV? It's like, I just told you, we've been on for seven years in America. Um, uh, the, uh, uh, the English one had Josie and Sandy, and I think Caroline Quentin did a few. And then when we do it in America, we'd have Karen Marion. Um, Kathy Griffin did it in the United States. Uh, various women did, like, one episode. My good buddy, Dave Gerst. But by and large, it was a male affair. Uh, and uh, that, that tends to be what uh, show business is all about, making sure that everything's a male affair and uh, making sure that um, uh, there's plenty of uh, penises around uh, in case anyone has, you know, a moment of inspiration or insight. So you can tamp it down with your dick to make sure that all the women know uh, where everything's going on this one. Thank you. That was a joke, but you can laugh as nervously as you like. Uh, so uh, we've had a lot of uh, groovy uh, women with us. First of all, Kirsty Newton is our keyboard player, and she's in about... She must be in more shows on the fringe than any other human being alive. Um, I think she's in four or five different shows. And then uh, Sugi Webster sat in with us, who you know her from uh, Paul Martin's Impro Chums, and she sits in with the comedy store players. Uh, Sally Hodgkiss, uh, who was uh, fantastically listed on the Blackboard the other day as Kelly Hodgkins. <laughs> and that's what's exciting about being a woman in show business. Uh, no matter how long you stay around, no matter what level you're playing at, they're bound to get your name wrong. Uh, Again, I thought there'd be humor there, but apparently we're going to take everything as seriously as a baby's funeral here today, so... <laughs> Thank you. I come to Scotland for the doer attitude and the cynicism, and then when I pour doer attitude and cynicism on you, you're like, no, no, it's too much. Why can't you be more sentimental, Greg? Well, because you're not. You're not sentimental. I've seen you step over a dead person's body with a tin of executive lager to get to your chips. <laughs> And then you get mad at me. Years ago, I got a review here on The Fringe that said, Greg's biting cynicism just cuts too deep. And I'm like, in Scotland? <laughs> when people get up in the morning and I'm like, I, the Baron's crying. Just kill him. <laughs> Give him some iron boo. He'll be all right. In a country where people eat tablet as a sweet and give it to children, you think there'd really be no bottom to how hard you guys are. <laughs> Because that's the dichotomy and duality and the yin and yang of Edinburgh is that you see young people whose faces are as fresh as can be. They look like uh, the morning dew, like a blank sheet of paper with just, just a tiny sprinkling of freckles in their, in their hair as they wander down the street in their gumboots kicking animals and smoking. And then you see people here who are so leathery they could have done time on a Norwegian Viking ship. And they're all in the same family. Uh, I, I think it's the weather here. Uh, that and having to walk down, up and down all the steps, uh, which is Marcus Brigstock pointed out, how could you be overweight in this town? <laughs> I mean, walk up the moon. Um, for our American friends, the moon is the mound. And um, it's a giant hill uh, that separates uh, the Gilded Balloon from the rest of Edinburgh. <laughs> There's a coffee shop where uh, J.K. Rowling uh, got the idea for Harry Potter after she'd been turned down by 16,000 men in publishing before she became the most read author in the entire goddamn universe in the history of time. Uh, is that the elephant hoose where she used to go? And uh, Amer you can see the Americans piling up in front of it and taking pictures of it. Like, J.K. Rowling wrote in here with a pen. 
they're all excited because she didn't um, Instagram the whole novel to herself. <laughs> or Snapchat it or whatever. Did I mention who else? Oh, Sally Hotchkiss, and she's doing, I think, everybody's James Bond on campus. Uh, Pippa Evans, who you might know, uh, quite an elegant uh, singer and performer. Uh, I think she's in Showstoppers, is it? Which is a fully improvised musical. I also noticed there's an all-woman uh, improvised musical called Notflix, where they do an entire musical with all women. There is a change. Um, it's always such a sausage party wherever I am. <laughs> it's nice to see uh, the, uh, the Thistle Party happen. <laughs> And Rachel Paris uh, sat in with us last night, and uh, she's outstanding. If you've never seen her before, she can sing. They all are such beautiful singers. Ruth Bratt didn't sit in with us this year, or, or not during my run, but she's also in Showstoppers as well. I just wanted to hit you guys with some names of some women that you should be following in comedy that are great improvisers. Um, just so you know, there's more to it than just all of us. Uh, let's see here. This isn't... Uh, as much as I whine about this venue, and I'm never going to stop whining, I don't know if anyone used the loo uh, just outside the, the alley of... Everyone before the show, uh, before my podcast, has to queue in an alley behind the Gilded Balloon. Um, of course, it's a beautiful sunny day, so the rats are glinting in the sun, and the, the rubbish bin is, is twinkling like a diamond, and the, when the seagulls land to eat uh, garbage out of the skip, you're like, oh, look at that, nature. Uh, it's a chance to really visit seagulls close up in this neighborhood. Uh, so they make everybody stand in the alley back there, which someone tweeted a picture of before the show last week. Well, the glamour of waiting to see Graham Show standing in an alley. By the way, if it was dark, you'd be killed on that alley. Because the other thing you need to know about Edinburgh is after dark, it's uh, when all the villains come out. And, uh, and although they're not, sometimes you, there's that you know, whole cast of train spotting element to Edinburgh. Uh, the Leith used to be a total no-go zone. When I first started coming here, uh, 30 years ago. If you went down to the Leith, it was to score heroin or have an assignation and learn something from another man. <laughs> and now it's full of chi places and radio studios and uh, uh, French restaurants and, and places near the shore and whatnot. And I think it priced itself right out of the business. Um, <laughs> the most frightened I've ever been here wasn't uh, by being, uh, you know, pretending I oh, was a hip supporter when a heart's, you know, party was in at the chippy, shit-faced in the middle of the night. Um, those are the football teams for our American friends. I have to explain everything for Americans, because if Americans hear something they don't understand, they're like, I don't want to listen to this no more. Um, <laughs> there's two football clubs uh, here in Edinburgh, Edinburgh, Edinburgh and, uh, and one of them is uh, Hibernian, and the other's Hearts, and uh, they don't care much for one another, because um, it's important um, here in Scotland uh, to maintain your parochial feuds as long as you can, uh, till the day you die. So if you go into a chip shop, uh, which is where they serve fish and chips for our American friends at Chippy. Uh, and uh, there's a bunch of supporters from one club in there, and you happen to wander in and the other kit. It's not going to end well. Um, there's going to be iron bros, uh, iron brews, or iron bros are going to throw iron brews. That's what's going to happen. Um, I've explained what iron brew was on the program before. Uh, it's like if you took uh, what we would call in America a St. Joseph's children's aspirin, which are orange-flavored, and dumped them in a 7-Up and let it sit till the end of time. That's the flavor <laughs> It's the flavor of medicine that you don't like, and it's the aftertaste of medicine you don't like, is what iron brew tastes like. And of course here it's like for strength. Uh, and tablet is um, just sugar. It's candy that they boil down to, it's just a piece of sugar, and when you take the first bite, it shoots into the cleft palate of your mouth and destroys your entire uh, mouth with the sharpness of, of its uh, tenacity and ferocity. Uh, so, uh, 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 you know, parochial doesn't even begin. 
Yesterday I was in a taxi, and um, uh, I'll explain what taxis are to the people who live here. Um, those, are the, those are the black cars that are riding around that are big. Sometimes they're red and green and whatnot. Um, the people here don't take them because it costs money. But we come from other lands, and we don't want to walk up the hill all the time, so we, take, we don't want to walk up the moon because I don't want to mess my day. Uh, and uh, I was in a cab yesterday, and I said to the cab driver, uh, yeah, I'm going back to London, and he went, I've never even been to London. And I was like, the smoke? It's not so bad. And then he had to laugh, um, because I used a colloquial that I don't think anyone's used here in 25 years. In the old days, people from Edinburgh used to call London the big smoke, because um, it's a foul, pestilent place. It's ringed by the M25 and a cloud of poison. That's how you know you're in London. When you're walking down Regent Street and a diesel bus goes by you and a baby cries and, and then you, you're, you know, bitter tears of exhaust are pouring out of your face because sulfur dioxide chunks have gone into your eyes like so many thousand tiny icicles and then a small child in a, um, an Arsenal jersey laughs at you. That's the story of London. Now, I know many of you have been to London because you're hip to the jive. And uh, some of you probably are from London. And we'll be doing the show in London. Thank you for asking. We'll be doing the show in London. Um, this is as good a time as any to get some plugs in, right? Uh, someone went, mm-hmm. It's, we'll be playing in London on a date later this month. Oh, wait. I'm expecting the internet to work in this room. <laughs> the other magic part of Edinburgh is no matter how many times you sign into the same Wi-Fi, you can be sure that it's going to fade out on you after a couple of seconds. And then another bizarre Wi-Fi that you don't recognize at all is going to pop up on your phone and keep popping up until you do something about it. Until you either throw your phone in a bin or turn the phone off or hit someone with it. And uh, it keeps changing every 30 yards here. Uh, there is a gilded balloon uh, Wi-Fi, but not down here. Where the bait, the ball, the balls, bottom of the balls, the bow bag, where the bow bag of the balloon here. And uh, uh, there is no internet as far as I can see here. But if you go upstairs, there is one. And by the way, um, if you want to log on to the gilded balloon's internet, it's um, uh, something. No, it's Fringe 2019. How about that? They picked an easy one. What I like is um, when you stay here, uh, well, not you, but I, when I stay here, when one stays here, meaning me, because uh, I'm speaking of myself in the third person royal now, uh, when one stays here, uh, one is usually given a flat. Uh, no, I don't share it with a bunch of other guys. No, all of us, me and McShane and Frosty aren't larking about uh, having sword fights and throwing pakoras at each other and whatnot and arguing over who gets to watch the cricket. Uh, and smoking joints in the morning while we whip up an omelet for the rest of the kids. Um, it doesn't go down like that. Um, I'm far too old to stay with other people. And uh, I also have my wife with me and my boyfriend. So it's very awkward for me <laughs> to have a lot of men around. Um, but the Wi-Fi at the flats you'll stay on will be the most intensely long codes. Rather than just say, like, whatever street it's on, like, you know, Dublin Street, you know, whatever, uh, Dublin Street 253 or something, It'll be X, Y, capital T, R, 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 underscore, 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 dash, colon, umlaut. And you're like, why? Who's logging on to your precious fucking internet? It doesn't even work in the back of the flat. It only works if you sit near where the bins are out front. Because the router is from 1953 and you have to pour water in it every five minutes because it's steam-powered. It's a steam-powered router in the house. And I've had some lovely flats here. I really have. I'm not complaining. I know. I'm staying in a flat. This is first world problems. I'm a privileged guy whining. That's what the name of my show is going to be. Instead of the smartest man in the world, it's going to be a privileged guy whines. 
fine privileged wines. And, uh, but it, it just makes me cry laughing. And also, uh, the, the, the rubbish pickup is um, uh, sort of intermittent. Um, so your flat can fill uh, with vodka bottles and, and, and McVitie's crisps wrappers, or biscuit wrappers. And all of you are looking at me, is that all you consume? <laughs> yes. <laughs> How I maintain my fighting trim during the fridge is by eating only McVitie's, wheat meal chocolate biscuits, and guzzling vodka from the Tesco mini mart. <laughs> I'll eat treacle. <laughs> Which isn't, by the way, just for breakfast anymore. <laughs> but never tablet. Uh, so the cab driver said he'd never been to London, and I thought, well, what's keeping you? Um, it's only an hour away in a plane, and then there's that whole, mm, no, not interested. Uh, which is part of the driving curiosity that makes Scotland what it is. Having said that, more authors come from this place, Scotland, and Edinburgh in particular, than any place I could think of uh, ever. Maybe the south of the United States. The south of the United States is, for some reason, I think it's the terror of the history of the South of the United States and the, the mad oppression that makes it such a hotbed of literature. Uh, everybody from uh, uh, William Faulkner and um, uh, uh, Taylor Caldwell, I'm, I'm blanking on the name I was trying to come up with here, uh, Eudora Welty and some of the more um, August authors. There's that, what's his name, who wrote all the law novels? John Grisham, is it? Uh, I would rather pull my own eyes out than read one of his novels. But he's from Mississippi as well. Um, but Edinburgh, uh, of course, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who invented Sherlock Holmes, J.K. Rowling, who invented um, Harry Potter, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, who invented Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Long John Silver. Um, that's a lot of famous... Uh, Sir Walter Scott, if you want to die of boredom halfway through a novel. Uh, <laughs> Ivanhoe and Rob Roy. Uh, that's a lot of famous characters to come from a place that has 400,000 people, and up till the last few years, did not have vegetables. <laughs> They were throwing the women in Princess Street Gardens, which was a swamp. That was in the 18th century. By the way, there were still witch hunts in Scotland during what we like to call in Europe the Age of Enlightenment. <laughs> Scotland held the line on that one. <laughs> Other than David Hume and Adam Smith and Dr. Lister, Scotland was like, not too much enlightenment. <laughs> Throw that woman in the pond. Uh -huh. I have a good time. Really, this show's for me today, apparently. <laughs> it's gonna start soon, too, it really is. So speaking of authors, uh, my good friend Andy Smart, who's doing a show here uh, uh, in the Gilded Balloon, at uh, another venue here, uh, I think it's at one o'clock, and his show's called 40 Years on the Fringe, because he's been coming here since 1979, which is ridiculous. I've been coming here since 89, which is unbelievable, but he's really uh, um, takes the cake. And he wrote a really groovy book called uh, A Hitch in, uh, Hitch in Time. Uh, we, we had the, um, he had a book affair the other night, which I went to, and it was on, okay, I don't have the name of the bookshop. It was 219 Brunfield Place. That really helps, thanks. Please, by the way, Greg, give obscure addresses on your show, because it really helps people. Don't link it or anything either. Just say 219 Brunfield Place and let everyone in the world Google that. It was in a lovely little bookstore. And uh, the woman who ran the bookstore said to me, have you written a book? And I was like, I did, as a matter of fact. Uh, several years ago, I wrote a book um, called The Smartest Book in the World. And uh, it was before the 2016 election, so it was hopelessly out of date within a year or two. Although my take on fascism is as keen as it ever was. I did mention Orange 45 in it by name. Uh, I hate to say his real name, which is whatever it is. And, uh, 
You know who I mean. Sweet potato Stalin. <laughs> Orange Julius Caesar. Adolf Tweetler, the criminal control killer. He's not my president. Uh, and uh, Hillary Clinton's my president, as I so often say on the show. But uh, I mentioned him in the book and said, what's wrong with the world is that people like him are allowed to give their opinion. <laughs> and now what's wrong with the world is even worse. Because uh, we're forced to uh, go to him every day. So we were doing a show... Uh, Andy uh, did his uh, at the bookstore on Brunfield, and uh, it was the best book reading I've ever been to. They served us drinks, um, and they even had ice. <laughs> I know. I was pretty excited. And there was, there was um, still water, which was nice, and uh, uh, there was three comedians there, and Andy, another, and who wrote the book, who's also a comedian. It was me, Phil Jupiter, Stephen Frost, Andy, and Ian Rankin. That was the whole crowd. <laughs> and it was awesome. Ian Rankin, you may know, because he uh, is the author of Inspector Rebus and millions of other detective novels. And I happened to meet him a couple years ago at a BBC thing I was doing on a radio event, which Diana Rigg was supposed to be on. And I couldn't have been more excited. I was like, Diana Rigg, because ever since I was six years old, in my nascent uh, childhood, uh, when, you, when you aren't sure why you love someone, just that they're beautiful and you want to be with them, uh, Diana Rigg was on television. Uh, when I was a kid, on a show called The Avengers. Uh, this is before the Marvel Comics Avengers, which uh, have removed all fun from life. <laughs> Every Avengers movie is a new event. Um, they all dress up in costumes, and then at the end of the movie, they beat each other up. So I can see why people love superhero movies, because it's just never knowing how it's going to end. <laughs> I wonder if they're going to have a really long fight where they use their superpowers, but then never use their superpowers and just punch each other. Uh, is my complaint. So, uh, uh, the Avengers in those days was uh, Emma Peel and John Steed, uh, who was played by Patrick McNey, and uh, 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 by the way, Diana Rigg, still alive, still gorgeous, uh, still appearing on Game of Thrones. Um, and I ran a picture of her the other day because someone wrote, uh, without giving your age on Twitter, uh, how old are you? And I wrote, what Emma Peel was in the Avengers, is how old I am. And a million people were online like, oh, fuck yeah. Because at the beginning of the show, she would be in a jiu-jitsu catsuit, and then she'd like throw some jiu-jitsu moves, and then she'd pop up from behind a chair with a gun and brush her hair back with the gun, because that's how bitchin' she was. <laughs> and uh, Steve wore like a you know, Brit typical British outfit, you know, like a, a little high-waist coat and whatnot, and a, a, like a Homburg, and he carried a brolly. That was to indicate that it was English. <laughs> it started. It was so long ago. The first season was in black and white, and then I remember the second season because it was the Avengers in color. Uh, why are you telling us all this? Because I went to this BBC radio event, and Ian Rankin was there. Diana Ray didn't show, but Ian Rankin was there with Anne Cleves, and Anne Cleves wrote uh, the Vera show, which has been on what ten years now with Brenda Blethyn. And Shetland, which is also quite good. If no one's ever seen the uh, Shetland Detective series, uh, and Cleves has sold a bazillion books, and Alexander McCall Smith was there as well. So I was in a tent with three people who sold more books than fucking Jesus ever dreamed of selling. <laughs> Between the three of them, how many uh, Scottish detectives have they come up with? Well, Alexander McCall Smith is the uh, First Ladies Detective Society, which takes place in Botswana. And it's a marvelous series of books as well. And was also a, a short-lived uh, TV show on HBO that was uh, created by Anthony Mangella. And um, this was an afternoon affair, and uh, th they have no uh, uh, ego whatsoever. I met Anne Cleves, and I was like, Anne Cleves! And she was like, huh. 
met Ian Rankin, and he started talking to my wife Jennifer immediately about rock and roll. And that was that. I never saw him again. And then Alexander McCall Smith, they went over to him and they went, um, Mr. Smith, uh, when you go to a BBC radio thing, um, because they're saving the world, the BBC, uh, in two ways. How are they saving the world, Greg? One, um, by supporting um, Brexit and Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage, no matter what lies they tell, the BBC was sure to broadcast them as the truth as soon as they could. And the other way they're saving the world is there's no plastic bottles of water backstage. So... <laughs> When the no-deal Brexit happens and you have to um, swap your youngest child for some penicillin, <laughs> you'll be happy to know that there's no plastic refuse at the BBC tent. <laughs> when you're bartering for fucking carrots on the street, like Russia in the 80s, when you have to stand in line for two hours for a cup of fucking tea, when you have to wait in a queue to fight with a HIV supporter, <laughs> these are all things that are going to happen when Brexit goes down. You'll be happy to know that the BBC serves... Serves water and plastic cup. Wo- sorry, water. Because I was with my friend Richard the other day, and we were at a BBC uh, interview, and um, he he said, "May I have a glass of water?" And um, <laughs> when I lived in London in the nineties, I would say, "Can I have a glass of water, please?" And English people go. <laughs> First, they would ascend to the dizzying, snow-capped peaks of Condescension Mountain. <laughs> And they would gaze down upon me through their nose like this. I'm sorry, what was it you wanted? <laughs> and I would say, a glass of water. Meaning, G-L-A-A-S-S-W-O-T-T-E-R. Water. Which is how we say it where I'm from in California, IA. <laughs> so they'd stare at me more. And then I would have to stop and go, I'm sorry, I mean a glass of water. And then they go, oh, Walter. And I'm not fucking kidding. People in London would pretend not to know the word water because I didn't say Walter. I found it quite amusing. That and uh, the rules. Um, There's a rule for everything. If you come to the United Kingdom, what's left of it? Uh, It's still lovely. You'll find that um, if you go to a park sometimes um, in, a, in a private neighborhood, um, the park will be locked so that you can't get into it. You can see the flowers and the lawn and everything in there and the, and the, and the trees uh, rustling in the, in the delightful uh, British summer breeze and whatnot. Um, and you can hear Art of Noise playing. Thank you for the two people who got that one. And uh, uh, there's a big gate. And it's green, and it's metal, and a skeleton key, a skeleton key fits in it. By the way, all the flats I've ever had in Edinburgh have never changed locks. They all still require a skeleton key, because Long John Silver is waiting around the corner here somewhere. <laughs> oh, Jim, you'll be one to open the lock when you're hurting. <laughs> I'm just inclined to let you open the lock that way. You're going to need a key. <laughs> and, uh, a skeleton key opens the... So who has them? Who has the skeleton keys, Greg? I don't know. So people who live nearby, the rich people who don't want anyone to have any fun in the park or let a dog go in there or have a child have joy. Because if a child has joy, a British person's heart dies. <laughs> if you're thinking about bringing your children to the United Kingdom for a visit, first of all, understand that there's a million ways to die in Scotland. You can fall down a step here. You can be walking through a close in the old town and just fall into a puddle and die in the puddle. Because it'll go all the way. You're like, I didn't know the puddle was eight feet deep. Yeah, it is. It just looked like a wet patch, but it's really that big of a hole. 
Um, you can topple down the stairs that are covered with moss that's never been cleaned. Um, you can hit your head on a railing. Um, you can be killed by a bus. Uh, um, or um, if you want to be killed in the new modern um, taxpayer-driven way, you can be killed by a tram. <laughs> you can walk down Queen Street, the tram will hit you, you won't even hear it coming. Because it's, you know, it's new. And, um, uh, and then, of course, there's the food. Uh, uh, you, could, you could eat a chip, and you don't know how long that chip's been in there, or how many things of styrofoam have fell into that, uh, that deep fryer. Uh, but what you need to know, really, is that um, not Scottish people so much, but English people, um, they're not the most romantic people that ever lived. Um, I don't think I'm breaking the bag open on this one. I don't think the piñatas burst. But just let me assert, um, from my point of view, now, mind you, I have many English friends, uh, and I've touched them. And uh, I've held them, I've, I've kissed one or two of them, um, and they're lovely. But English people aren't like your best friend right away. In Hollywood, where I come from, the super phony place, uh, everyone's your best friend right away. If you went to Hollywood and went, oh, hello, how are you today? They'd go, oh, you're from Australia, I love it! You're my best friend! And you'd be like, I hardly know you, and they'd be like, come on, we'll go with it. Um, and then if you ordered beer at lunch, they'd be like, ooh, they're out of control. <laughs> And then they go shoot heroin in their car because Hollywood is all about balance. It's Pilates in the morning, binge drinking at night, and then getting it together so you can do coke. So, but just don't tell anyone. Uh, English people uh, don't call each other uh, their lover uh, or even their wife. They call the person they're with their partner because you want to feel like you're in a Dickens novel and you're in business with someone. You want that warmth to come. Now, I've been to France, uh, and um, there's a place where the ladies wear no pants. Um, I've been to Morocco, and um, in Morocco, if you bring your children with you, uh, the Moroccans just tend to look after them. So if the kids are running around the restaurant and running around the plane and running around anywhere, the Moroccans will just gather them up and play with them and talk to them and give them candy and shit and look after them. Um, if you're in France and you have a child with you, people are like, oh, they bill, and they're like, oh, isn't the baby special? If you're in England and a child like coughs and shit, everyone's like, that's it, you've ruined dinner. I knew I should have beaten you and put you in a box. I'll say it again, kittens. Hiring is difficult stuff. It's hard to find qualified candidates and sifting through resumes is time consuming. But there's one place you can go where hiring's simple, fast and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash smart. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. But they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash smart. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash smart. ZipRecruiter.com slash smart. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And there's no such thing as dating as far as, I mean, not that I've ever dated here. I've been far too uh, a monogamous for far too long to have dated ever in England. But from what I gathered from my friends and the scene from some time ago, uh, is that people don't go on dates. Everyone goes out together down the pub, um, gets wildly um, arsehelled, and, uh, and then uh, shags each other, and then they never look at each other or talk about it again until the end of time. <laughs> and that's called having a relationship. Um, 
You don't really hear English people say, I love you. You did. Um, and, you know, there's the poem, you know, Robert Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Um, and then it stopped. Uh, but no, like, if you, if you walk, if you're in Paris and you're uh, by the Seine, you'll see an bateau mouche goes by, right? One of those little boats that plies the Seine with its lights on and shit. Um, you'll, you'll see revealed as the light goes by at night on the Seine, thousands of couples making out and groping each other. Men, women, everybody, all. It's just, it's so romantic. And then if you go to the Thames <laughs> at night, which you shouldn't do, but if you go to the Thames at night, say you're down the South Bank or something, and you're on one of those delightful little boats or one of the little watts that's near, um, and a light reveals people standing next to the Thames, you won't see anyone kissing. You will, however, see men waiting for other men. <laughs> to fix what's wrong in their life. Uh, so the romance is a little different here. Do you have a point for this? Yeah. I'm getting there. Um, I never talk about the royal family because I'm not a huge fan. I mean, I love the TV show they do every 10 years when it's the wedding. Where they spend all of the taxpayers' money so that the children here can starve, so that they can have a gigantic wedding that goes on and on and is an international TV show. Uh, I like the last one because it had an American black person in it, which pepped it up a lot, but made it more like a reality show. We've invited a black person to be in the royal family. Let's see how this works out. And then, of course, a year later, it's like, she's eating avocados. Avocados destroy the world. She's creating famine with a snack that she likes. Did we mention Prince Andrew likes to bugger young girls? Oh, no, we didn't mention that. Because we're busy focusing on the black person. You let a black person in here. Um, having a black minister get up at the wedding was superb. Having her black mother sit there with a big flowered hat was fantastic. Having a black woman walk down the aisle. Having the Duke of Edinburgh have to sit through all that. <laughs> knowing that he was choking back his entire liver the whole time. Not just vile, the whole liver came out. And he had to... He had to... You notice you haven't seen Philip in a while. It's not because he's so old. He crashed a car this year, didn't he? Or was it early last or like late last year? He was still driving. He's 100 years old. I'm not exaggerating when I say he's 100. He's literally close to 100. Um, it's that he doesn't... You, you know that he just doesn't ever want to be asked about it. Because you know he's going to come up with one of his delightful Philip gaffes. I was watching a show the other night on BBC. And the BBC... Wow. <laughs> They really just can't call themselves the we want to stick our head inside the orifice of every Tory and every royal so far that we can give them an exam from where we stand network. It would take too long to spell that out. There was a show about the royal family, and it was one of those royals in conflict. And so they'd have these idiotic people come on from tabloids and go, well, that was a bit of a dust-up between Harry and... <laughs> If you had to be in that family, which has had more hemophiliac perverts in it than any family in the history of mankind, except for the German royal family or whatever, which they are. <laughs> Elizabeth had, uh, uh, or was it her, her father, George, had a couple of uncles that were perverts, one of whom killed himself. No one even talks about him. Of course, the czar was uh, their cousin, the Kaiser was their cousin. Um, King uh, uh, Edward, the one who abdicated because he loved a woman so much. 
Edward loved Wallace Simpson so much that he abdicated the throne of the crown of England just so he could be with her. Um, he was a Nazi. <laughs> he loved Hitler more than anyone except our current president. <laughs> 45 keeps a well-thumbed copy of Mein Kampf next to his bed. The illustrated one. <laughs> he ain't reading shit. It's a connect the dots Mein Kampf. <laughs> Uh, the reason he was abdicated was he was forced to abdicate and he was never allowed to come back to England again, by the way. They made him travel around the world. The letter had his money, of course. <laughs> so, um, a, a famous figure was revealed yesterday uh, on the Sunday Times. And by the way, I support all Murdoch uh, publications because they're so... Fair and balanced. <laughs> they really give you the whole story. Whether you're white and wealthy or wealthy and white, you're going to get the point of view that you require. Whether you're a wealthy man or a man that's got money, you're going to find that they come at you the way they need to. The Daily Mail was the one that buried the Andrews story because the Andrews story is as fresh as today's eggs. Uh, Jeff Epstein, who offed himself in jail, a couple of weeks ago was very good mates with our prince, uh, Randy Andy, as we knew him. <laughs> we give him all lovable nicknames. They called him Randy Andy. <laughs> Sexual assault is so funny when you give it a nickname. Uh, uh, that story was driven off the front page, and there was actually a picture of Meghan Markle with an avocado, and then a guy with a gun next to it, and it said, Meghan Markle's favorite snack causes death and drought. All she did was eat a fucking avocado toast. <laughs> Um, the story that was in the Times yesterday on the front page was that Lord Mountbatten, who is the uncle of the Duke of Edinburgh, that would be Prince Philip to you, to the Americans, the uh, one who's not the king but is married to the queen, the rather tall fellow who has a, a very colorful vocabulary, he has more words for ethnic slurs than the uh, uh, Native Americans had for rain. Um, a lot of them start with W and end with G. And... Thank you. You can fill in the blank there. I'd like to buy a vowel. Um, his uncle was Lord Mountbatten. Lord Mountbatten was a father to Prince Charles, who's the heir to the throne here, as we know. Um, Prince Charles didn't care for his father much, Philip, because he's cold and unfeeling. Um, Lord Mountbatten, however, was friendly and lovable uh, to our Prince Charles and was a father figure to him. Well, it turns out, of all things, gosh darn it, who would have known that Lord Mountbatten and his wife were both sleeping with the world? And that Lord Mountbatten had a predilection, wait for it, want it, need it, for young boys, often dressed in uniform and sometimes schoolboy uniform. Mind you, he was head of Southeast operations during World War II for the entirety of the Allied force, then after the war was the final viceroy of India, and as only the Times can put it, was such a popular viceroy that he was asked to stay on as governor general. Really? What an interesting rewriting of history. <laughs> you mean during the gigantic bloodbath civil war that ensued because the British pulled out no Brexit style and left the Indians with no fucking plan whatsoever after dominating the place for a hundred fucking years? You mean that Mountbatten liked to Roger boys? And we're just finding this out because an author wrote a book about them, and this is from an FBI file from World War II. I'm making none of this up. Um, have some fun. <laughs> and read about them. Um, I believe they were talked, uh, perversion was the one word used, and the other one was him and his wife were both of low moral character. <laughs> so of course they were asked to rule the world, because it is the white people way. 
Look at the people who are running the United States in Trump's cabinet. Every single one of them looks like they were somehow brutally disfigured in a lava accident. <laughs> they have more eyes sticking out of their heads. It's like the bar in Star Wars. You have no idea what's going on in this cabinet. Every single one of them is a pervert or a grifter or a con man or uh, some kind of mountebank to the highest degree. Every single person that surrounds Boris Johnson is a complete, stunning, awful Nazi mess. Uh, and so we've asked them to run the show. Um, it'll wind out. There is hope for the future. This, this is the last gasp of the Stegosaurus as it makes way for the warm-blooded, transsexual, um, colorful people that are following afterward. When the mammals succeeded the dinosaurs, it led to us. When these dinosaurs die, it'll lead to a multicultural groove chicken world where everybody holds hands and no one cares what your sexuality is as long as your piercing doesn't get septic when I'm going down on you. So, <laughs> it will all be better, I assure you of that. How can you make us so sure? Because I deal in hope. <laughs> Just because Lord Bogdan was a pervert doesn't mean that uh, everyone is uh, going to be in the future. Uh, a couple of quick, we're going to have to start the show very soon here. I'm going to have to get <laughs> um, all I wanted to say was, um, if he is, and he was Charles' mentor, uh, and uh, Andrew, as we know, uh, is, up, uh, is never, ever going to be charged with what's been going on in Epstein, even though we know he took part in all those reindeer games. Uh, I, I ask you again, uh, when it's time to devolve here in Scotland, please, please leave. Um, you don't need England. What I'd like to see... What I'd like to see is passport control at Darlington where every English person taking the train up has to be pulled out like it's World War II. <laughs> Can I see your papers, please? And then if they're like, oh, bloody hell, I didn't bring my passport with me. Sorry. <laughs> Back to Southampton with you, <laughs> you wee Sassanac. This is a newspaper here. There's a lot of great newspapers here in Scotland. There's the Daily Record. And... Uh, <laughs> The, uh, uh, the Herald, whatnot, uh, the Scotsman, um, 70 great years of following the news several days after it happened. <laughs> <laughs> then there's my favorite. Oh, the, is there still the evening one that the cabbies read? I expect there is, because all y'all are literate. <laughs> then there's my favorite one, which is put out in the neighborhood of Broughton called The Sparkly. A spurtle, as we've discussed on the show, is a spoon with which you stir porridge. For our American friends, yeah, like in a fairy tale, we eat porridge here. <laughs> like in a nursery rhyme, we're still eating porridge. Sometimes it's in a pot nine days old. <laughs> and the spurtle uh, is the uh, paper of record for me here because there's an advertising page on the back, which is awesome. Uh, and it says, like, for instance, uh, um, Broughton Property Management. Let us let for you. Well, to our American friends, that means let us rent for you. In other words, they'll get you a rental property. But we, we don't rent here, we let. And so every time you walk by a property that has something uh, for let, it says to, to let on it. Which always, to me, from far away with my shit eyesight, looks like toilet. Uh, need legal help? Clear, direct, expert advice. Oh, this writing's small. Yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to use the goddamn magnifying glass app on my phone. Did you know you had a magnifying glass app on your phone? It's in the settings. Uh, how old are you, Greg? It's not that. It's that I can't see. It's not that I'm not old. I'm plucky. 
it's bright red. Oh, there's a red light on it. Jesus, I was like, why is the magnifying glass making everything red? Are you hallucinating? If you need advice from a local Scottish solicitor, personal injury claims, 100%, no win, no fee. Employment law and tribunal, tribune, tribunal. Do we often find ourselves up against a tribune here? <laughs> was Pontius Pilate a tribune? No, he was procurator. You gotta be careful of those tribunes. Uh, employment law and tribunal advice, civil, civil litigation and dispute resolution, property landlord and tenant issues, debt recovery matters. Call us for a free initial consultation. But that's not what makes this photo so extra, extra special. What makes this photo Ben McPherson, MSP, member of Scottish Parliament for Edinburgh Northern and Leith constituency. He has an ad in the back. I don't know if you're supposed to meet him or vote for him or just hook up for coffee. Uh, these are the, this is why I read this photo. The headlines. Broughton's independent stirrer. Good time to buy a hot air balloon is the first headline. <laughs> is there ever really a bad time to buy a hot air balloon? Like, say, for instance, um, you and your dog got lost, and you found yourselves with being befriended by a lion, a scarecrow, and a tinman. <laughs> the only way to get out of where you are is going to be a hot air balloon. So you may want to have that on hand. Uh, to meet an in expected increase in demand from the new Edinburgh Street, St. James Scottish Gas Network began 22 weeks' work in Bellevue at the end of July. Oh, I see. You're supposed to buy one because there's so much roadworks going on. Is that so you can hover above it? And then this headline, which I thought was fantastic more than anything. Bins, sins, and fertile win-wins. Broughton is a beautiful neighborhood, and there's a lovely church on the Kirk on the corner and uh, of Broughton Street in New York Place. And I remember Jennifer telling me she was going over to the Real Foods there a couple years ago, and there was a dead seagull on the lawn of the church. And a couple of days later, she went back to the Real Foods, and the dead seagull was still there. <laughs> because nothing says honoring a dead seagull more than letting it lay in a churchyard for a few days so everyone can get a look at it and pay their respects. <laughs> You don't want to put it away right away. You want it to lay there to just let people know that Scotland's still fucking going to prevail. <laughs> Could you go back to the comedy group? Really, really soon. I'm with you. I'm with you. Thank you for sitting through this fertile portion of the show. Um, Peter Fonda uh, uh, is swirling in the heavens. He's riding around. Peter Fonda was a movie actor. Um, he was 79 years old, which uh, may have come as quite a shock to him. Jack Nicholson, uh, that he outlived Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda. Uh, they uh, took a lot of drugs in the 60s, then they took a lot of drugs in the 70s, then they took a lot of drugs in the 80s, then they took a lot of drugs in the 90s, and then they carried on taking drugs for the last 20 years. Uh, and Peter Fonda made it to 79. His father was Henry Fonda, uh, the movie star. And Peter Fonda was quite a good movie star as well. Dead handsome, really tall, uh, gorgeous. He famously wrote Easy Rider. And supposedly, Dennis Hopper directed it. But noticing Dennis Hopper's behavior over the years, it would be difficult. He directed a few movies, this is the truth, but which proves the point that white male privilege is the most potent drug in the history of mankind. Yeah. I wouldn't let Dennis Hopper walk my dog. <laughs> because he'd come back with an empty leash and be like, hey man, I don't know what fucking happened. 
and you'd be like, all right, great. There was an alligator or something. I walked into a thing and man, it's like a thing. It's a factor. You can't fucking be a, you know, dogs are dogs. They're going to be like a dog. It's going to be like a dog and it exploded on itself. It was a St. Bernard. What did you do with it? I don't know, man. It just, the cosmic void opened up and the reticulum showed itself and he was sucked into a fucking pink and perfect world where there was a swirling thing and that's how everything ends, man. Like T.S. Eliot said. So he passed away. By the way, Dennis Hopper, resolutely right wing. Not a lot of people know that. I know he played the hippie stick. Good old gun-toting right winger. Peter Fonda, resolutely left wing and a lovely uh, person by all accounts. Um, uh, Peter Fonda was not close with his father. His mother killed himself. Peter Fonda's mother killed himself. And he learned it from a teacher because his father didn't tell him. So Jennifer and I went to see Peter Fonda speak a couple of years ago at the Turner Classic Movie Festival in Hollywood. And he was great. He came and a guy who'd run a, uh, written a biography of uh, uh, Henry Fonda interviewed him and just talked all about his dad and whatnot. And he- Peter Fonda did everything in one interview that one human being could do. He was awesome. Uh, he heard a camera go off in the back of the room and he went, <laughs> movie star style, and he's still really gorgeous and he's good at the teeth. He's all teeth, right? Uh, uh, he ate a salad. I didn't know you could do that during an interview. I thought you were supposed to pay attention and just talk and shit. No, he fucking ate a salad during the interview because it's Hollywood. And uh, it wasn't quinoa, but it was probably kale. And, um, and then he cried. He ate a salad and cried during an interview. I don't think there's been a better interview that I've ever been to in my life. He became hysterical at one point, said his dad set him down to finally have a chat with him when he was like 20. Like, Peter, you're my son, right? And he's like, yeah, dad, I am. He's like, maybe it's time we have a talk. And he gave him a shot of tequila. Uh, actually, it would have been Henry Fonda, so he'd gone, Peter, I can't do Henry Fonda. <laughs> What if his dad was John Wayne? It would have been like this. <laughs> My Henry Fonda is too shit. Now, James Stewart was an extraordinary right-winger uh, and kind of a famous uh, right-winger, uh, although he did fight nobly in World War II. Henry Fonda, always a left-winger. Um, and someone asked Henry Fonda, how come you guys were best friends forever? And he went, we never talk politics. But I would have liked to talk politics with James Stewart because he would be like, well, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to... I can't. No. <laughs> voting, 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 voting. You have to. <laughs> um, Peter Fonda uh, was a, a, a movie star, and he's in a lot of biker movies in the 60s. And you may remember him if you've seen Pulp Fiction, in a scene where Samuel L. Jackson walks in the room while Bridget Fonda, his daughter, is smoking pot and watching television, and a movie called Dirty Mary and Crazy Larry is on, and Peter Fonda's in that movie. And um, I know it's not my ringtone because my ringtone's cool. <laughs> Does anyone have my phone number that's in this room? Nicola, Nicola, you have my phone number, don't you? Yeah. You want to call me? Do you want me to? Do you have my cell phone number? Yeah, hang on. Okay. Yeah, my agent's here. <laughs> and she's like, Greg, when you do the show next time, Humor would be real important. <laughs> Not sporadic humor, but like the humor throughout the whole show. No, no problem. I'll wait. Oh, they sat through the spurtle. They'll sit through this. There's nowhere else they're going at this point, as far as I can see. I just want to prove to you that my ringtone's cooler than that really weird... Oh, no, go off. Go off. Piece of shit. <laughs> Why would it ring? 
Here, try again. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We're doing a ringtone experiment. <laughs> Shows him wrapping it up. Phone's on silent. I know. I moved it off silent and I turned the ringer on. Really? <laughs> Nick, are you there? Shouldn't you have improvised something there? Yeah, I should have. Uh, my ringtone is Hollywood Swinging by Cool and the Gang. It doesn't, it's not as cool to tell you. But when my phone rings, it goes da 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 I remember. I wanted to read you a couple of quotes from Peter Fonda before we go into this good night. I was born famous, so right off the bat, fame meant nothing to me. And then this is what he's learned from an Esquire article. Never refill a plastic water bottle. That one made me laugh. I have no idea why Peter Fonda doesn't want to refill a plastic water bottle, but I think it's sound advice. Uh, I'm always changing the words. A screenwriter writes for somebody to read, but we're paid to take it off the page to make it spoken. People stammer, they stutter, they take pauses, they drop stuff. They can't get their phone to ring during a comedy show. <laughs> Uh, let's see here. I like to go online and look at the Hubble Space Telescope. Out there you see total chaos and perfect symmetry. That's God. Peter Fonda goes online and looks through the Hubble Space Telescope. I don't know what you're doing with your spare time, but you could um, be a little more philosophical. Uh, where's the line I was looking for here? Muslims want the whole... Oh, not that one. Here it is. Once I forgave my father, everything else became possible. I started telling him, before you leave this planet, because he was on his way out, I need to hear you say, I love you very much, son. When he died, I was in the room with Jane, her husband, Tom Hayden, dad's fifth wife, Shirley, fifth wife. Henry, Henry Fonda was a people person. We were in the room, and everybody was really morbid, but not me. At first, I was looking at him. He was kind of in another state. And then he came to consciousness. He looked around, blinking one eye and then the other, like a drunk trying to find the right part of the path to walk down. Big, beautiful blue eyes, you know. Then he looked at his firstborn Jane, and then he looked at Hayden. When he looked at me, both eyes opened. He focused on me, and he said, I want you to know, son, I love you very much. And that's how we left it. Uh, you've been the smartest crowd in the world. I've been the smartest man in the world. Thank you very much for coming out tonight. Spin that last couple of bucks.